I found uh, a letter uh, written by Kant's friend and colleague, uh, and colleague called Vysiansky. And in this letter, he writes that there has been a dispute between Lampe and Kant, which has made Lampe run away. So Lampe did run away right before Kant's death. And in this letter, he writes uh, that Kant was so, quote, Kant was so embarrassed by what happened between him and his servants that he refuses to talk about it. I'd like to thank our top sponsors, Jared Fountain, Marco Campos, Anders Berge Christensen, Fergus Ryan, as well as our anonymous donors for making this show possible. Remember when you realized your favorite play was not written by Henrik Ibsen, but your own father? Well, my guest sure does. And now she has both directed it and played one of its characters. Hey. Okay. Hey. Bye. <laughs> Jeg var til buksen. Store, dumme lampe kan jeg få se deg mellom bena. Ok, gå! Gå nu! Ja, jeg har han helt alene. Ok, jeg har deg. Jeg har deg. Det er en ung mann som vil snakke med. Ja, det passer svært dårlig. Vi må, vi må klepe han. Vi skal drekke ære klærne mine. Kanskje vi skal vente her, Kant. Ah. Det er en ung student som vil snakke med her, Kant. Ja, men det passer ikke. Men han ønsker seg inderlig å få snakke med her, Kant. Vi har en avtale klokken ti. Ja, beklager her, student. De må dessverre gå. After Nordrum, welcome to the Cave of Palace. Thank you so much. This is the play you directed, and you acted one of the characters in this play. And I found it, I mean... I cracked up when you told me that you discovered at some point that this was not written by Henrik Ibsen, but your own father. <laughs> Can we start with that? Because <laughs> yeah, um, it was a tragedy for me because I loved Henrik Ibsen. <laughs> and then realizing it was just my father. It's like, oh, because when you're a child, you just look at your father as a dad. Right. You don't look at him as a master at anything before some years have passed. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I got very shocked and I didn't believe it. But you were like seriously disappointed? I was a bit disappointed uh, okay. because uh, I thought now Ibsen has really done it because he was a bit more <laughs> vulgar in this play than in his other plays. Right, right, right. A bit yeah. more brutal and yeah. vulgar and said some things that the other plays didn't say that, of course, yeah. has to do with the language at the time. Mm. Yeah, because I was afraid I was sort of being a bit... Um, uh, media friendly. I said it was your favorite play, but was it actually? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But because you you were listening to it uh, as a, as an audio book, or your father was playing it, right? Yes, because uh, it was uh, my father first wrote it in the beginning of the two thousands, and then he created a theatrical audio book together with uh, Christopher right, Hebu, yeah. for example, and uh, Jan Horsta, two mm-hmm. very talented actors. And they made it into an audiobook and he played it in the studio. Mm. And he played that among all the other Ibsen plays. So 
of course, hence that well, that's why I thought it was an Ibsen. It was uh, last days of Kant and a doll's house. And, yeah, it was uh, just like this or that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who Kant was when I was nine years old. Right, right. So I didn't really care about that. I just cared about the fact that it was a great story. Right. Um, I wanted to, to uh, figure out or that we should talk a little bit about how it was to uh, transfer it to stage because there, there might be some difficulties or some challenges on that. But um, perhaps we, from the get-go, should just uh, get a clear idea of the action. If you could give us a synopsis, like a short synopsis of what is ha what happens in, in that play. Yeah, uh, well, Immanuel Kant is a national romantic uh, moral philosopher who lived during the 17th and the 1800s. And uh, in this play, he is confronted during his last days before he dies. Right. He's suddenly confronted in the middle of the night by a Vermeer forger called Hans van Megren, mm -hmm. who comes in and disrupts him. And he's in a formation of a ghost right. or something. He comes as a white powdered sculpture looking man and confronts him about his misinterpretation of aesthetics and arts, and also his forbidden homoerotic uh, tendencies. Right. That's basically... Because this is a one-act uh, play. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, everything is in one room. Mm. So mm. it's very easy to put up, actually. Right, okay. Yeah. So um, how did you come about the, the idea of, of actually staging it? Um, I thought about it since I first listened to it. So, but I used to do that with all the Ibsen plays. I would sit up in my father's studio and I would listen to them and I would always envision them happening on a stage. Right. And I did the same with Immanuel Kant's Last Days. Right. I saw the, the lighting, the furniture, the colors of the clothing and everything and all the actors, how they looked like. I saw everything before me. And... Uh, I had a very clear image, I remember, on what Kant looked like and the students. Right. And I, all the time I just thought, oh, I hope someone puts this up uh, one day so that I can see if they're right, if, they, uh, with their, if, if we have the same imagination, right, <laughs> me right. and that other director. <laughs> and then now, of course, <laughs> it has happened. We have the same imagination because I'm the director. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I thought it's ridiculous if no one puts it up because this is such a great play with such powerful psychological depth. Uh, and, uh, but it, hasn't ha it hadn't happened and I asked my father about it and he said that they tried to do it uh, yeah. once in 2005 at the National Theatre. Uh, but it, that w it was disrupted because of this man with power in the uh, academia. Who uh, wrote a review of it. Yeah. Yes. And said it was the most despicable thing he had ever read, mm, mm. or something like yeah, that. A Kant expert, by the way. Yeah, he was a Kant expert, which mm. makes sense. Mm. Uh, but he uh, didn't like it, and I thought. Yeah, um, I have yeah. to. I have to brag. You know, this is something that could have happened, mm -hmm. uh, where Nordum suggested that I should be the the staged, uh, or you, you work with the scenography for that staging. Oh. So yeah, that was. Uh, that would have been. It great. didn't didn't happen, but uh, yeah. I just had to through. Yeah, you have to have some role in this too. I've been too. working with theater too. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that that would have been great. Mm. I, th I mm. think that yeah. So, but so when did this dream actually materialize? Um, 
it materialized. So when I heard about that it wasn't put up at the National Theatre after all, I got a bit angry because I thought, how can someone's view on Kant <coughs> uh, take over everything? You know, I didn't mm. understand how him focusing so much on Kant and that it was wrong, that his ideas were wrongly represented was so important and that mm. he didn't look at the story because mm. I was only looking at the story. I wasn't right. very familiar with Kant's philosophy. And so I thought, okay, well, to hell with, I mean, if you like him or don't like him, you yeah. know, if, if Aristotle was represented in the same way, I probably would have put it up because I just love the story. <laughs> <laughs> it, because it's so Ibsen-worthy. Right. And so I, thought, I got very angry and I thought, um, I probably have to do this because if everyone has this mindset, then it's never going to happen unless I do it. Mm. So I thought I'm going to wait until I'm grown up and then see, look around if anyone's done it. Um, and if it hasn't happened, I will do it. And then I turned 20 and it hadn't happened yet. So I decided to do it. And the first thing I did was I called Christopher Heaview, the mm. actor. Mm. And I said, I want to put up this play. And what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he has actually had experience with putting up plays in his youth before going into Hollywood. Right. So I thought he's the best person I can ask. And he staged that the very first, actually the very first play that your father wrote, The Curatoriate, which is more of a dialogue. Yes. You can say. And I remember him playing out that scene. Right. And I remember I was so in, so much in awe seeing yeah. him. Yeah. So I thought he's the only person who can help me with this because he's in mm. that same lane. Mm. And you got to see him naked. And I got to see him naked, which yeah. was pretty great. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, so he came down and we had a conversation. And I remember he sat down, he was very serious. And he said, after, do you really want to do this? And I said, yeah. And then he said, because it's going to be so hard. And it's going to be so hard that you're going to want to give up at some point. And um, you, you probably will, <laughs> because a very small percentage uh, are able to rise up from that because it right. was my first production right. and I was doing something that big. There must be some myth about that situation. <laughs> some myth, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, I said, I just said, I have such a huge love for it, so I think I'm going to be able to do it. Uh, right now I can understand why he said it because it was very hard. <laughs> right. And I do regret producing, directing and acting at the same time because that was okay. very difficult to handle all of that. Because you hadn't done basically neither of them before or? No, I had yeah. acted a bit before, yeah. but not directed. You did, so you don't have an education in acting or in, in theater direction or anything like that? No, no, yeah. I have no education. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but then he said, okay, fine, we'll make a list. So we made a list on all the actors we were going to contact and how I was going to finance the project. Uh, luckily, during that time, uh, the Civilization, the culture newspaper, which right. I'm an editor for, yeah. together with Carl Kushnis, that newspaper was cooperating with a gallery called TBS Gallery in Oslo, mm. uh, which is this amazing gallery with a great, beautiful sculpture park and uh, showing the paintings and sculptures of Tore Björn Schetzig. And... Uh, the owner of that gallery had recently just told me that they were very eager to have more uh, cultural activities happening in the gallery. Right. This was just a week before I contacted Christopher Heavy. 
And so I thought, aha, I can just go to them and tell them about, present the idea. I want to put up this theater piece. Could you sponsor us and could we have it here for you guys? Um, you will earn something from it because they will earn um, attention and lots of more people knowing about their gallery, coming to their gallery. So it's yeah, commercial you, for them. You got quite a good, quite good uh, press on it, or like amount of, of attention. Yeah. Yes, and that was also my plan that I outlined for them. You mm. know, I said, we will get this much attention. And they were like a bit hesitant in the beginning, like, really? And then I said, yes, it's odds, it's Immanuel Kant. It's homoerotic tendencies. <laughs> what more do you want? <laughs> you have like a silver platter of. <laughs> well, so you, you could add pedophilia and anal fixation. Yeah, yeah, pedophilia <laughs> as well. I'm just there's a whole list of in politically incorrect things. Yeah, it's a nice. And sandwich. people love the yeah. things that are as long as they're politically incorrect enough, people will come and see it. Right. Right. Um, and this was very incorrect. Okay, so uh, then we're talking about, um, uh, okay, you've gotten all the actors uh, when that work is done, mm -hmm. everything is in place, and you're going to, uh, I guess, simultaneously, you're thinking about how do you turn this text into something that works on a stage? Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if you could say something about that, that, that actual, the, the actual, well, I hate that word, process mm. of working with the text and trying out how it uh, functioned on stage. Yes, uh, so um, I knew that it had been, uh, the text had been reviewed before turning into a theatrical audiobook. Mm -hmm. So I decided to use the text that was in the audiobook. And, and not, that was a different text? Oh, it it's the same text, but just some things are cut out. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. So I decided to, I just transcribed everything that I heard from the audiobook right. and made a manuscript out of it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't change anything uh, because I wanted all the actors to work together on this. Mm. And so I brought that manuscript to the first table read. And then there were lots of changes that happened. Mm -hmm. Many rehearsals in the beginning were actually just spent with us actors during, uh, around the table uh, rewriting the script together. Okay. Were those rewritings extensive or...? Not so extensive, but for me it was extensive because I was the owner of the manuscript, so uh -huh. it was very hard for me to deal with some of the right. cuttings. But I was working with a very professional actor, Ellipsen, who mm. was Kant. So I had to sort of um, undermine my position. I had to make him do some decisions for me because he was uh, after all, we were lucky to have him with us, right. so we had to listen and, and to him. And should emphasize, he's, he's uh, a, absolutely a prominent actor yes. in Norway. He's, uh, in case someone should have seen him, they have the, the movies about Elling, mm -hmm. this guy who cannot <laughs> survive on his own. Okay, yeah, so, so yeah, it's not just... Uh, he's known to play the very uh, weak, uh, yeah. misunderstood character, right, which right. in many ways is Kant, but, as, but Kant is a more harsh uh, right. Right. version of right. that. So you have done that, that thing about uh, cutting some lines, having been done already, uh, and then there's a process of doing that also, and then you start uh, to, to actually try to perform it? Mm, yeah. And have, were there any challenges there? Did you immediately see how things should be done, or was it like, uh, how the hell do we solve this scene? Like, 
I had no idea how it was going to happen from、mm. the beginning. I just went with the flow, and it, and it、mm. worked out because what happened was that we did many table reads, like、right. maybe ten table reads,、um, wow. where we were just sitting around the table reading from the scripts. And then eventually, people slowly got up from the table <laughs> right. and acted out the scene <laughs> without really me encouraging them to do so or anything. They、mm-hmm. just did it because they were actors and because they had gotten so comfortable with the text、mm-hmm. and they had gotten so much into the story that they couldn't help not acting it out. Right. And that、so、transformation was very interesting for me to see. So it somehow grew natural just out of the the the、uh, sort of. The mental energy or whatever of the yes. text. Yes. Yes. Well, first. Or that the、uh, actual action. <laughs> yeah. First, we rehearsed in this small room, this small room in the gallery, and and then I decided we need a bigger space because after a while, people started acting it out and became very loud and stamped on the floor. And then oh, we need another <laughs> place. So that was my de- that was the decision I took. Right.、So、and then you seriously started.、Uh, Sort of Then I started seeing everything and, together,、yeah. and that was very fun.、Right. But it was very challenging with、uh, movements and placements because some actors wanted to move a lot, but they couldn't because it wasn't their turn. And there、oh. were a lot of egos to work with. You know, <laughs> <laughs> actors—they have huge、right. egos, all of them—and、uh, they know that. So yeah. So were there any instances where you couldn't find out how to make a scene work? Like visually, physically. Yes,、uh, actually, just the first scene when、uh, with Lampe、mm. and the students and Kant. Wait, yeah. When、uh, the student suddenly comes, knocks and comes in、mm. and wants to show Kant the map, but he's、mm. being sent out.、Mm. Um, everything worked well until that came, and, and we and I thought, okay, here something needs to be done,、uh-huh. because Lampe and the students were standing in the same place. And then the student is supposed to show him this grand plan or tell him how great he is, and then Lampe is just in, standing in behind, and it doesn't look good because、uh, why would Lampe stand right beside the student? And Lampe needs to have attention too. He needs、right. to show his、uh, character. So we had to make Lampe stand here and the student go here. And many of the things that you see in the play that might not seem rehearsed are very rehearsed. Because people are walking there and there for a reason. Right. It's to create air in the scenery. Right. Many times it was difficult to create air because people were very extravagant with their role, and then they were suddenly standing in front of another character. Right. So y- y- I presume you had some challenges with、uh, too much talking, yes, visually. Too too、yeah. much ex. Experimenting、yeah. really, yeah. because when they started experimenting,、yeah. I thought, okay, this is wrong, and I had to disrupt their experimenting, and they、yeah. got a bit angry. But we、yeah. have to work under a, we have to work.、Uh, it, it's like a machinery, you know. You, yeah, yeah. It's like craftsmanship. You have to. Of course, you you agreed to work. Put the brick here and the brick there. <laughs> yeah, you've agreed to work in a collective, so、mm-hmm. then you have to take that, right? Yeah.、Uh, but is、uh, is there a specific? Example of、uh, like、uh, at least one. Well, I guess you mentioned one specific example, but the, I'm thinking about this other example that you mentioned to me when it c- came to、uh, the student and yourself <laughs> as the maid. Yes.、Uh, can you explain that? Yes, that's Act Four of the play.、Mm-hmm. That's a, that was really difficult for us because、mm-hmm. at one point there are five people on one stage. Right. And. 
not only that, but conversations are happening from each side. Like there's a conversation here and there's a conversation here. And um, we had to cut out one conversation, but it couldn't have just be cut out. Hmm. Uh, that would have seemed strange because Lam at one point Kant is, ye Kant is yelling at Lampa, his hmm. servant, right. <laughs> about the clock not working and all this. And uh, Knott, who is the teacher of the university in the director, Yes, yeah. Knott is Kant's nemesis in many ways. He's just standing there drinking, getting drunk, laughing at the whole situation. And then we have the maid and the students over there that are flirting right. and talking about the map. That can easily become confusing or like... A, yes, yeah. it was so much chaos in the beginning. Hmm. And although it seems like it's chaos now on the stage, it's organized chaos. Right. That, <laughs> so, yeah, that reminds me, I mean, it's like one of my tasks is to try to take what, what we're talking about and somehow related to painting so, it, so we can get sort of the essence of it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, uh, just a very short, short thing, there's a, uh, there's a relief that Leocaris made for the original mausoleum, uh, this uh, tomb. And I remember the first time I saw it, it was just a lot of, it was a total mess. Figures fighting going all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I started analyzing it and I saw, well, there's two figures Organized, there. Yeah. There's one there, there's one lying there, and it was all squares and, and triangles. It sounds like the sun. That, that wasn't the point, but um, it was mm -hmm. really st solidly composed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's an organized mess. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's uh, basically what theater is. It's yeah, an organized mess. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but did you feel, I mean, I, I, I guess I interrupted you a bit. Yeah. Uh, how did you solve that scene and when you and the student, the maiden student? Are, yes, that was an interesting thing. We, we had, me and my co-director, Adara Ryum, had mm -hmm. such trouble doing this that we hired in a director from the new theater in Oslo. Mm -hmm. And she was a, a, a friend of us and she had been in the business for a long time. And she came inside and she had a clear vision of it and she has lots of experience from before. So she saw immediately what had to be done. Mm. And so she made Kant, after Kant yelling at Lampe, she made Kant fall over Lampe and, 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 cr yeah. and crying and hang over him, which made sense because he's crazy and he's uh, angry with him. Yeah. And while he was hanging over Lampe, then it was the student and the maid's turn. Right. And it was so beautiful to see because that was just like a Caravaggio painting happening nice. right in front of us. Because it was all the movements too, because he's not standing straight, he's hanging over. And then uh, the maid and the student are like leaning into each other. So nothing is, uh, nothing is, everything is living. All mm. the movements are living. And that was very wonderful to see. Because right. that's one thing. Um uh, well, I talked with your brother on the show last uh, program about the, that list of, of uh, paintings. Mm -hmm. um, how you, you know, then this is something that Blake Snyder, I always come back to that book, Save the Cat, talks mm -hmm. a lot about how you can have, um, if you should have drama, of course, drama then, as I learned from your brother, means uh, physical movement, action. Um, but if there's action all over, there's no story. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing there is composing a scene exactly like a painter has to think. Then if you have five figures, they can't all be sort of screaming, look at me. Mm -hmm. No, 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 <laughs> they can't. No. 
Uh, but um, uh, but <coughs> also, when some of the fi uh, figures are dismissed, are not in the attention, they also sometimes become even more beautiful, right. like Lampe mm. and Kant. Mm. And uh, that's also something, uh, also something that theater has in common with painting, which I recognize while reading Poetics by Aristotle, is that um, when you squint at a painting as a, as a painter, you get the whole view of it, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is connected with everything, and then you see uh, things from a different perspective. And it's the same thing with theater. If you if you're so used to sitting there right in front of the stage as a director and sitting there watching them all the time, if you go far, far back and see it from almost a dis a very, very far distance, you can see things that you didn't see from before. Mm -hmm. And I was so funny because Aristotle, I, I realized that he writes about this. <laughs> and he's, he says here in chapter 17, he talks about making theater. Right. And he says, in constructing the plot and working it out with the proper diction, the poet should place the scene as far as possible before his eyes. In this way, seeing everything with the utmost vividness, as if he were a spectator of the action, he will discover what is in keeping with it, and be most unlikely to overlook inconsistencies. Right. It was so funny for me to see this, because uh, we re realized this while directing, and then he writes about it right. <laughs> in poetics. Yeah, it reminds also what I learned from your father, when you, if you're looking at the painting, especially, especially large ones, uh, mm -hmm. well, a scene. Mm -hmm. um, and you take a little, uh, what called binoculars, you take them the wrong way and look at it and it becomes as oh, little yeah. as, a, as small as a stamp, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get all the lights, darkness, all these things, the distribution in a very condensed format. And then you really see what works and not. And it's basically the same thing going yes, on. Yes, it's condensed, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the trick with making theater and, and literature and painting is to mm -hmm. condense everything, really. Mm -hmm. One sentence, for example, in literature can be too long with too many adjectives, but the, the, the real trick is to condense it into five very right. powerful words. You know? right. And that's also, speaking of condensing, this is why we have uh, your father's uh, painting Aurora mm -hmm. on the wall, just as a little teaser about what the last days of Kant is all about, yeah. passion and public destruction. <laughs> Yes. Now we go for a commercial break now. <laughs> um, but, but before, we, um, uh, so, so I want to spend a bit of time on uh, your father as a, a dramatist, his qualities as a narrator. Yes. Um, and then we'll get into that weird comparison that you came up with that this has to do with Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> we, where we sort of discuss more well, part of the philosophy of Kant uh, also. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but before we get to your father as a dramatist, uh, there's one little thing, this is typical, that is very appealing to me. You, you thought about the clothing and the colors of clothing on the different figures. Can you just yes. say something about that? Well, first, uh, I'd like to say something about the background as well, oh, yeah. because that has to do with the colors and the clothes. Mm -hmm. Uh, from the very beginning, I was very certain I was, uh, that the colors of the background of the furnitures and the carpets were going to be uh, black and brown mostly. Okay. Black and brown and maybe a little bit of ochre. Mm -hmm. And that's because I was looking at some Rembrandt's paintings 
in the very beginning of creating this production. And I just, I fell in love with the background of uh, In the Prodigal Sun and the painting of Titus, where it's this delicious black mixed in with this brown. And, and it's just this amazing, like, you you suppose that it's going to be this mud color in the end, but it's mm. but it's so beautiful <coughs> because it's both black and brown, and those are two colors that usually don't go good well together, but they go so well together in Rembrandt's paintings, and I wanted that same uh, atmosphere on the stage, so that's why Kant's desk is in oak brown, the clock is right. black, and the, and the scenery carpet is black, and I also wanted these colors so that they wouldn't clash with the colors of the actors. So that the... Fairly uh, neutral, toned down background, mm -hmm. or, or the props in the background. Yeah, yeah so that yeah. it wouldn't draw the attention away from the actors. Mm -hmm. I think uh, quite a few painters could learn Mm -hmm. from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has, I mean, I was thinking about it, that, that, that's very closely related to painting. Yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. draw the attention away from yeah. the main fo yeah. focus points. And that, that's a... Uh, Funny too because I went, I talked with Per Lundgren about that uh, in mm. the earlier programs about how one of the adjectives that was used about your father a lot in the 70s was theatrical. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah, as obviously not as a compliment, but. Uh, His paintings are very theatrical. Right. And now I can say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, and with the colors and the clothes, I wanted the most prominent colors to be white. And dark red and dark green. Why? White because it's so such an easy color to work with, because it creates air on the stage, and it's an easy contrast color to work with. Mm -hmm. it creates a good contrast between the characters, and it makes the characters light up so they're in the attention all the time. Mm. And also just because I love the cream white shirts that Elena Dragosin makes, mm. and she's also my costume designer, designer on this project. Yeah. And dark red because it represents power, and I really wanted Knott to have a dark red vest because he's a very powerful teacher at the university, and Kant is envious of him. And dark green, uh, or this olive green, because of uh, many things. One, because uh, of Goethe, is a huge part of the whole play. Uh, Kant's love and hatred for the poets Johann von Goethe, and uh, he also dresses Lump up in this green uh, jacket because it reminds him of Goethe. <laughs> right, very, right, that's very funny part of the play. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that's implicit, I guess. But I mean, when you mentioned it, I thought, well, of, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm, I know. <laughs> it's like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> Uh, but his hatred towards Goethe is very funny right. because it's actually because he was in love with him. <laughs> right, right. In front of this great male animal, I felt so small. Yes, <laughs> he didn't even look at me. <laughs> and then, of course, he dresses Lump up yeah. in, in this green yeah, yeah. jacket. And uh, I also had a gr the green color on <coughs> the maid because um, yeah. I wanted uh, somehow Lump and the maid to be connected because they're in the same social class. Right. They're both servants of Kant, so they should both represent the same thing in a way, and I could very easily do that with the colors only. And also, it makes sense that Kant, if he's, Kant is so fond of the color green, that he also dresses up 
the maid with green, so mm. both of his servants, right. who will remind him of Goethe. <laughs> right, right. Um, and uh, then brown also. Uh, so those were the colors I used, basically. So the Apelles palette. Mm, mm. And it, it's uh, also in quite close to what I call uh, visual signifiers. And I now we're sort of getting into the part where we're talking about your father as a dramatist, how he, how he makes these things uh, uh, go together, right? Mm. A cohesive story. And um, there's, there's one thing I noticed, and it, I might be adding things to, to, to the play. I mean, it's like what Ibsen said, the people who read the plays are more poetic than the poets. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I just noticed that one thing that he does uh, is to play up to, for example, the fact that, that my Megren, Han von Megren, the, the, the forger, comes in as a ghost. And we accept that. Mm -hmm. That could very easily go wrong. Yes, oh and God, yeah. one of the things that he does, or as far as I can understand, is that well, the, the Kant says, uh, you know, oh, what about the the old parties that I used to have, and well, I have to get used to speaking to myself from now on. Yes, he says that to his servants. Right, yeah. and and then that shows a sort of state of mind that makes it possible that Megan is someone he just. Makes speaks. up in his mind. Right, mm -hmm. and then there's the thing about the the white horse. Yeah, yeah, I asked my father about this, yeah. and it makes sense that it's a reference to Megrin. Yeah, and it, well, I have to explain. It's the yeah. it's the um, uh, pub or whatever you would call it uh, that uh, Lampe, the servant, wants to go to uh, in the beginning. Of yes, the, the White Horse is yeah. the name of the pub that yeah. the servant goes to at yeah. night. Yeah. And we were wondering if that was a reference to Megrin. Because he comes in as a white marble sort of figure. Mm -hmm. uh, but I asked my father this and he said no, he didn't think about it. Right. He, just, <laughs> he just named it the White Pub or the White yeah. Horse. Yeah. Because um, there was a pub that Munch and Strindberg used to go to oh. when they were younger called the Black Horse. Right. <laughs> and he just, you know. Simple, yeah. innocent, changed it to the white horse. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a name available for him right then and there. Right. And, it, and that's another thing. My father finds it funny when I come up with all these references that he has in his play. Hmm. You know, references to Ibsen and everything. And he finds it funny that he didn't realize this while he was right. writing it. Mm -hmm. So, but it was all in his unconscious. It wasn't the genius speaking. <laughs> right. Oh, so, so how do you explain it? I, yes, well, it's very easy to explain. So well, now it, it seems to fall apart the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing makes sense anymore. No, but it's very easy to explain the whole thing because my father says um, it, there's a very a good answer to this, and it's mm. because at that time when he was writing Immanuel Kant's Last Days, he was listening a lot to Ibsen's place on the audiobook, mm. and I remember that time as a child. <clears throat> he was listening to them all the time, every day while painting, mm. and reading them and talking about them. So obviously he would have all that information stored in his unconscious mm. when writing Immanuel mm. Kant's right, right. And that's yep. uh, another point uh, which makes it, that's an, a reason why it's so important to read and include your life with the things that you want to do yourself, because then it, it's stored in the unconscious. Right. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's also some really... Uh, clear but also subtle things he does to show what will happen to Kant. What does he say that the, the, 
uh, consciousness is struck by by nature. Oh yeah, when when he says that, it, yeah, 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 I mean, that's too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I mean that that's what happens with Kant at the end that he goes. I, I, well, it's not fair to say that he, he becomes crazy, but it becomes demented. Right? He has some some kind of a stroke or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think it's just funny, so uh, fascinating that he talks about that the the, the clock is not ticking anymore. Mm-hmm. That's and a it, huge part of the yeah, whole play. <laughs> and that is really a clear example of of how you can, in something totally different, show that this is Kant's future fate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? And I mean, also the very obvious one, which is almost too obvious, is when he says, uh, it's beginning to be cold outside. It's uh, the, you have the the season of life and the season of death. Right. Now it's the season of death, <laughs> and it's like screaming at the audience, "What is going to happen?" <laughs> Which also Ibsen does many times. Well, but yeah, that, yeah. that's uh, I, mean, I talked to it uh, with your friend uh, Dara about that. How uh, I didn't mention that on the conversation, but I mean, Ibsen is like he rolls in this big neon signs with arrows saying, "Here's something going on." But also, but I mean, tell us about the, the, the dried flowers. Oh, yes, I the can. dried flowers. Yeah. Yes, because um, Kant has this room called the flower room where he mm. occupies, a lamp is usually there. Mm. And it's a room full of dead flowers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's you don't have thing. to explain. No, I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, we should. Um, yeah. uh, give people the undertext. It's like, well, one thing is that everything that Kant touches dies yes but it's obviously an indicator of what will happen to mr kant himself and kant was also very fond of flowers yes yeah because i mean that was a biographical fact about kant right Mm -hmm. and and uh and your father used it uh, metaphorically or Mm -hmm. in the play yeah Mm. so there are many things if you know about kant and if you know if this play becomes even more amazing once you read up on Kant and Hans van Meegeren, and right. then it's just like, wow, yeah, and how I, has this been? Speaking of, of uh, so-called unconscious things, I remember your father mentioned, having read somewhere or whatever, there was something about that Kant used to take walks with a guy whose name was Green. I've heard about <laughs> this, yes. this is totally the twilight zone (laughs) yeah and and another thing i found out because i did some research on who was Kant's servant was that he actually did have a man's servant in real life called lampe yeah 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 yes that was and um and uh, i also did some more research and i found uh, a letter uh, written by Kant's friend and colleague uh, and colleague called visiansky and in this letter, he writes that there has been a dispute between Lampe and Kant, which has made Lampe run away. So Lampe did run away right before Kant's death. And in this letter, he writes uh, that Kant was so Im- quotes Kant was so embarrassed by what happened between him and his servants that he refuses to talk about it. End quote. And this is written in a letter by his friend. Uh, that I found on the internet, and that was quite shocking to me. <laughs> because... <laughs> you know what happened? Yeah. When your father wrote that, he changed history. <laughs> yes. So that that letter was written, and then you found it. <laughs> Maybe that uh, Well, it's clear as day. Yes, yeah. and, and so many people are reacting to the 
to the play that has just been performed, like, oh, it's too radical, this, that he yeah, had a just crush made things up. Lampa, what the hell. <laughs> and then, you know, they haven't done their research because this <laughs> is quite evident that something something happened there. Well, I mean, it's so... so um, that's what they do with all great, uh, like, painters or whatever. Michelangelo was gay, you know, uh, Leonardo was gay, and I, I guess you could go on and done with mm-hmm, this, so why not yeah. Kant? Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's so obvious, so many factors. That yeah. He was never seen with a woman. Mm. He never had a family. Mm. And then there was a dispute between him and his servant, and his servant ran away. I mean, yeah. there's, yeah. yeah, you can speculate all you want. Case closed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, getting back to this here, mm. desire as the root of public destruction. Yes. Uh, so how does, uh, like in, sorry, technically, as a dramatist, how does your father show Kant's sexuality? Now we're talking about narrative skills, like how do you not do things too obvious, mm-hmm. but sort of allude to or show, not in your face, but that something is this or that way. Yes. So Ald does this uh, trick, which Ibsen also does, which is called the retrospective storytelling technique. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is uh, when he intertwines uh, life events from the past into dialogue. Mm-hmm. So instead of outlining what has happened in their life on the stage, like for example, uh, Kant raping the boy, instead of showing that ha- uh, happening on the stage, he shows it through subtle uh, hints in dialogue. And Ibsen does the same thing. So, for example, what Ibsen does in Hedda Gobbler, instead of showing um, Hedda Gobbler and her husband Tessman's honeymoon and her marrying Tessman and everything, he shows uh, everything that plays out when they come home to their boring, comfortably lives, where nothing happens. So nothing really happens, but everything is told through dialogue. So it's actually like a, an easy trick to skip all of those, mm-hmm. those uh, dramatical scenes. Right, okay, yeah. So uh, he Ald could have written in a brutal scene of Kant raping a boy, but he didn't. He, yeah. he, uh, it was revealed through dialogue, and that's the retrospective storytelling technique, which is so amazing, mm. because that allows the audience to imagine scenarios individually. Uh, that's, that is really an un- uncomfortable scene when when uh, Ellipsness can't mm-hmm. <coughs> start because that yeah that's something I re- really noticed. Um, I'm very grateful that we could look at the, the recording together mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I noticed that when when Han van Negen comes in of course Kant is very much uh, you know what who, who the hell is this mm-hmm. <coughs> but then uh, there's sort of a, a connection there that that, that occurs, mm-hmm. and the, I mean the ma- major point is to, basically to have a philosophical discussion. Now yeah. that can easily just fall flat on its face. Yes. Um, but then when when uh, uh, he comes in and he talks about being a forger, it's like suddenly that person has a fate, mm-hmm. or some, uh, something has happened to him. It's not just some uh, some uh, um, uh, thief or whatever. And then Megan starts explaining what has happened due to Kant's philosophy. And then Kant gets, gets interested, well, I guess impressed that he knows all these things. And it's like, like he says, speaking of pointers, 
wonder how my, my reputation will be in 100 years, it says the beginning. Yes, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. Megrain comes and says, here you go, sir. Here is the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Khan starts discussing philosophy and then it's uh, credible. Mm-hmm. Because he could easily be like, oh, you can't, you wrote uh, <laughs> kick of judgment while in paragraph 46. It's like, well, okay, okay, calm down, let's, let's make it credible first. But, I mean, your father manages that without, uh, without a he's, problem. He's very good um, at it. When you see it, it's like, it's nothing. But it, he must have spent a long time trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. How long are they going to have the first introduction? When yeah, is because, the philosophy um, thing going to hit? It, hits? Yeah. Because there's so much that could go wrong with that. With that, here's a play about philosophy. It's like, where's the yes. action? <laughs> yes, where's the action? Uh, yeah. And also, those are the things talking about things that we changed for mm. the production to be put up on a stage. Okay. Uh, we had to change some of the first few lines of Act Two, yeah. when Hanfa Megri meets Kant, because in the original book, it's they have longer sentences in the beginning. Like you did this, I saw, I read in your book, blah 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 blah, in my pri- in the prison, blah blah. Now we've we've changed it so that everything is more or less one rhythm, mm-hmm. uh, one fast pace in the beginning. Okay, yeah. And Christopher Hivey helped a lot with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so that's actually another thing I learned as a director, that something can be so beautifully and wonderfully written in a book, but put it on a stage and it doesn't really work because on a stage it needs to be a set pace, a set energy mm-hmm. before it shifts. Yeah. And this energy has to co- uh, cooperate with the movements of the characters and everything. So for example, this is just an example, but if a character tells the character, oh, career paints so wonderfully smooth and then the other one argues, but what about Caravaggio's proportions? And then the other one goes, but have you no uh, feeling for rhythm or flow? And then the other one suddenly <laughs> comes with this huge speech <laughs> on Caravaggio painting feet and, and, how, and, and everything. And right. it's, it doesn't work because it's right. not the same energy. Right, so something about proportions and, and rhythm. Yes. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> and I was thinking also, um, um, going back to the whole uh, rape scene, or when he references that, uh, Kant, uh, it's just just amazing how he, you know, that is seemingly a detached story, but it's a visualization of the effect of the philosophy of Kant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's like if you could have two thoughts in the head now. I mean, yes. We're talking about the, the structure of the narrative, mm-hmm. and then we'll maybe get a little bit at least into Kant's philosophy later. I mean, but but as a, as a, a storytelling, that scene shows his character and becomes yet another another pointer into showing that this guy is demented. This <laughs> is you know death bringing or whatever. You know, yes. Or not fruitful. It shows, it suddenly shows the audience that because uh, this is a man who's been in denial all his life, mm. he has created such a systemic you know, philosophy. Mm. A- and uh, that's why he's been writing about morals in such a harsh way and, and that there are all these different principles for morals. I mean, he's, he just shows that he's so puritanic and Christian in his philosophy um, 
I mean, from what I've read, it's like, Jesus, this is really a man who's, without like putting the, the play that I'd written aside, mm. anyone in the right mind will figure out by reading Kant that this is a man who's denying something about mm. himself. Because yeah. he puts everything in systems and everything has to be correct. And if you look at people with OCD, they're usually hiding something. They're, they oh. usually have a big problem with themselves. So they have some why. structure somewhere. Yes, or, it's like a girl with, with an eating disorder. Yeah, She's yeah. trying to control something. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing. Well, I mean, so, and that, that's one thing. Uh, I mean, when you read the critique of judgment, there's one little footnote. There's a lot of interesting footnotes. Oh, in, in so many interesting footnotes. If you want, we can get to some yeah. specific footnotes. But one which sounds like something, uh, your father doesn't use it in the play, but if he had, you would thought, oh, okay, that's making it up to make Kant look bad. Yeah. But Kant actually says in a footnote, uh, talking about it, it's self-evident that people who are beautiful and are symmetrical, we, of course, we perceive them as stupid. <laughs> 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 but if we want to get into shadow and all that uh, Jungian... Uh, uh, that's, he definitely has a big, big shadow, yeah. Right, right. Um, so... Um, how? Uh, well, there's one. Yeah, that's one thing too. I mean, you could just go from one thing to the other and just cut me off if you want. Mm -hmm. um, there's specifically two before we sort of get into the Frankenstein part here. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to go through. <laughs> oh my god! Um, uh, I'm thinking about how um, at the end. Mm -hmm. When that student comes and he's so uh, enthused about the, the perpetual peace, the book uh, by by Kant, and, well, one of the later works, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, he comes in to present that, and that is after Hans von Meckern has been there, and Kant has obviously had some kind of stroke or some uh, something like that going on, and that is also brilliantly a brilliant way of showing visually. The result of Kant's philosophy—it's a demented idea. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. I mean, that—that's that's just amazing. And I think uh, the student even realizes it for a little bit when he's there. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. is this the philosopher I have been admiring yeah. my whole life? <laughs> Everything's going to down to pieces now. Yeah. yeah. And that's also—I mean—that uh, uh, that's also a place where you get into, okay. Is this only a philosophical battle? No. Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? What, what is it? It's everything. Right. <laughs> yes. Again, I, I mean, if it had only been that philosophical showdown, then it wouldn't, wouldn't function. No, no, no it wouldn't. Hmm. And that's what, why, what my father has done so brilliantly, is that he's created this... Um, theater play which is actually quite academic and philosophical and yeah. hard to understand yeah. in theory yeah. the plot is at least but he's made it so um so com so um, easy for the public to understand on the stage because of everything that is happening around yeah. the philosophical debates but i mean if, because you have everything from yeah the philosophical debate but then you sort of clothes it and you have these things like, uh, well, the rape of the boy, and you have... <laughs> yeah, which draws the attention of the audience immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and mm -hmm. and that makes him also human you know like you should with any character no, mm -hmm. no matter if it should be like bad or a good character yeah right? because a good character can't be superhuman either um <clears throat> but then it's, there's also the humor where for example one of the, one of my favorites is is um uh when the student comes in and he sees that Kant is uh, you know well he might think he's crazy whatever mm -hmm. and he says well you, we all know that Kant has been a moral calm all his life well perhaps not right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps not right now and then everything falls to pieces because yeah. he's believed in this his whole life and he's created yeah. a map yeah he's created a world yeah. order yeah. for Kant yeah. And then he sees what Kant really is. Yeah. And then he runs away with the maid because, you know, what the hell? <laughs> He's well, going to choose the primitive way. <laughs> and that's where I've, uh, I'm thinking, um, that's when he kind of uses, uh, sort of, it turns into some kind of a weird operetta. Yes. Or, or like a fugue. Yes. Where all the kinds of things going on at the same time. Yes. And, and uh, basically what happens is, is that everyone, including Kant, leaves mm -hmm. yes <laughs> because Kant leaves his mind and everybody yeah. else just you know, and there's away. so much sarcasm yeah. there too if yeah. you if you've read philosophy there's so much sarcasm because Kant uh, he always at least in eternal peace the book he, perpetual um, peace perpetual peace yeah. in English yeah he always um, makes fun of not makes fun of but he criticizes uh, naturalis uh, which is the nature uh, natural um, living condition oh uh, he criticizes that. Oh, yeah, okay. Everything, you know, ruling, um, ruling a whole country or a whole world should have nothing to do with the natural condition. And mm -hmm. it should be intellectual people who do it. And, and uh, he criticizes naturalis a lot, at least. And uh, that's exactly what the student ends up doing. He ends up following his nature. He ends right. up go running away with the right. maid, <clears throat> following his primitive, sensual, uh, yeah feelings you naughty girl <laughs> yeah. uh, but that reminds me of something that that uh, is, uh, you know was my one of my pet things to mention uh, is the sort of the whole idea of sort of a parenthesis a repetition mm -hmm. where when uh, Megan comes in and it accuses Kant uh, he says a philosopher is a man who takes responsibility yes you know, and it, because you haven't thought about the horrible consequences, you, you destroy objective criteria, then no one has a chance other than through, no, through knowing people or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, the student comes in mm -hmm. and he was, tries to persuade you as the maid, oh, come with me to Berlin. <laughs> and I says, uh, well, can I, you, I say, you, you say, um, uh, can I trust you? And yes. he says, yes, well, I'm a, I'm a student of philosophy and that is a man who takes responsibility. <laughs> yes. And then he again shows that that's exactly what they don't do. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Uh, it's, so so uh, he makes one thing, uh, something in, in the beginning, which is really something you can understand. Mm -hmm. Here's someone who says, do you know what you've done? Yes. You have to take responsibility. And that's, yeah, that, I'll sign my name under that contract. Mm -hmm. And then the student comes again and, and becomes... Just, just ridiculous the whole... Perverts yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, the repetition is also a good mm. dramaturgical technique, uh, which Ibsen also yeah. uses a lot, the yeah. repetition and repeating it so that uh, it loses it, its meaning in the second time or it changes its meaning. Mm. Right. That's, that's what you do in, in, in a lot of folk music, also a lot of these songs where the same thing occurs again. There's one, 
I'll not recount it here, but <clears throat> there's a, there's a sent that's Ibsen again, mm-hmm. uh, and what we just mentioned now, one sentence which is somehow quite neutral, and then the story around changes and becomes more and more horrible, and that same sentence just becomes this sort of grind that goes without yes. pity. It's yes. just like it, like in Doll's House with the the, the wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Which, but that's also a bit sort of more in this uh, line of irony because Ibsen uses it to, to show how she's just floating all the time. This is La Donna Mobile. Mobile. La Donna Mobile. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean that the women are able to move. It means that they're not <laughs> <laughs> useless weight. <laughs> yes. I got that one. Uh, okay. That's <laughs> perfect. In, just in case. Yeah. Um, so, uh, are there. Yeah. Before we get into. Uh, Anal fixation. <laughs> There's also another technique which okay. Ibsen uses, which I'd like to talk about. Yeah. My father also, shameless as he is, uses, yeah. copies, <laughs> steals, which is the um, yeah, I know something you don't know trick. What do you know that I don't know? I'm getting <laughs> excited here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, intriguing. It, it works. It's, it's very yeah. intriguing. Yeah. And it's even more intriguing for the audience experiencing, experiencing it through a play. Mm. And it's when the, uh, the author basically gives the audience um, a piece of secret information, like, here you go, take care of this information, mm. about someone on the stage. Mm-hmm. And then they feel like they, they have ownership over the theater piece. Suddenly, right. they have ownership because they know something that that person doesn't know yet. Mm. Oh God, I know the story. <laughs> I know it before you, you know, <laughs> like, you're excited. And, and this is what Ibsen does. Uh, mm. so many times he gives power to the audience mm. because when you show too much on stage then the director is the one in power the authors uh, the, or the actors are the one in once in power yeah that's not supposed to happen the audience should be in, uh, should be in front of the actors right so that's that, when you capture the yeah, audience's yeah, yeah, attention yeah. because of course then it seems like they don't know what they're doing they're just being controlled Yes, uh. and so you see this playing out in Immanuel Kant's last days. For example, when uh, um, when Kant has just revealed to the ghost in Act Two mm. his secret crush on his manservant Lampa, yeah. and like, oh, should I tell him or should I not? You know, how should I do it? <laughs> <laughs> because he has longings too. Yeah, yeah like to, and then to... he becomes very vulnerable all of a sudden, and he's like, oh, maybe yeah. I should tell him. And he, <laughs> Becomes like this teenage girl, you know, who's like <laughs> sending notes to the other person in the classroom. <laughs> and and then Han van Megren is like, oh, you should tell him. And then they suddenly become like mates in that scene. It's very right. interesting. That's another, but that's another thing we can talk yeah, about. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so then uh, the audience knows, okay, he has a secret cr- crush on Lampe. And then act three begins and Lampe comes in on the stage. Mm. And everyone is sitting there, like looking at Lampe in a different way, because now they know that Kant has a crush on him, and, and they're just sitting uh, there the whole time, waiting. When will he mm, say it? When mm, will he say it? I yeah. can't wait. And uh, that's when the audience has gotten more power than uh, the actors on the stage. But that's also, I mean, like we're just like, like we're talking about it now. It's like it never ends, right? We can mm-hmm. go on for two more hours just talking about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so when when he comes in. You you know that, and and um, there's several things that are sort of meeting at the same time here, where uh, uh, he, you know, okay, so it shows Kant's philosophy mm-hmm. denying life, 
mm-hmm. and how that you know when you want to deny something it becomes you know the Jungian shadow thing it just goes bigger yeah. so of course this is a time where you would say uh, well the English equivalent would be thou and and you the mm-hmm. difference between thou and you right mm-hmm. so polite uh, uh, addressing someone politely or, and being personal uh, yes they, they yeah. do that in the play they yeah, use yeah. thou and thee yeah Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, that's one thing too that Megan says you, but Kant yes. says thou. So then you get that too. So it's uh, that's very. Uh, and that's obviously uh, also and, because Megan comes from a future from right. a futuristic time, but also yeah. because he doesn't respect Kant. Right. So Why should he call him thou? So that is not uh, uh, incidental, right? No. <clears throat> so, but when then Kant shall do, you know propose to Lampe. Mm-hmm. From being this very strict, correct, he's suddenly like, can we say you, I love your body. It's like from total <laughs> distance to ah, like this. Yes, you know, it's I like, know. There's no transition at all. And, and that, that's yeah. when you're denying, when you've been yeah. denying something for many years, of yeah. course it will come out like this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And, and the, the, that's also when you get that. Um, uh, I've said it so many times, right? it seems like I have a problem, but the anal fixation. Yes, uh, <laughs> it seems like you but have a problem. I, I don't have a problem with that, seriously, I, I, I can promise. <laughs> um, no, w- with how he says, like, on, on different points, but in the end there, can I look you between the legs, Lump, uh, mm-hmm. and then when they, when they are coming to, to, to honor Kant, the committee from the university, then it says to the to Knott, the, the director, you want to see see me behind? Mm-hmm. It's like everything is just right into what really matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know. And he even talks about studying all the seven holes in the body, and the seventh one is is uh, the anal hole, and and the, that the is the seventh heaven. one uh, it belongs uh, to God. Yeah, and that's where yeah, and that that's uh, that's where God sits. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's so and it's so cleverly done because yeah. of course. Yeah. All the rights yeah. in this major change on, yeah. of Kant because he's been denying something. For yeah, well, years. you get from the very top where where you have God. We yes. only think about that and to get this. to the very bottom. Yeah, to this, yeah. And that's where God is. It's uh, brilliantly uh, edited or, or sort of structured. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in that conversation where Kant, where Lampe is just that actor, uh, Frederick uh, Hamilton, mm-hmm. is amazing at being. Very uncomfortable He's with the so situation. He's so uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, that's the thing where, where uh, your father then turns that whole thing, where we know more than Lampe, mm-hmm. but then Lampe says, the looking hole. Yes, and then he knows more than us suddenly. Yeah. I could hear some strange noises dressing, and mm-hmm. then I found that little hole, yes. and he can't been standing there looking at him. And then just sort of flips the whole thing, yes. and then you get Lampe. Sort of, I mean, Kant basically get crushed, gets crushed, so to speak, from from Egren, mm-hmm. while there's also sympathy, and then Lampe comes. It's uh, really brutal. It's basically just doing uh, doing uh, magic tricks on on the audience all the time. Because yeah. first you give them information that they think they have before the actors, and then suddenly they have the actors have the information, and it's mm. like. The audience yeah. is never at peace with something. Well, it reminds me how your father uh, is writing uh, poetry when he uses rhyme. Mm-hmm. But it's not like A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. 
suddenly there's some weird variations, yeah. weird stuff that doesn't fit at, at all. But it suddenly becomes, fits at the end of the whole yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, where it says like, well, here's, it's like um, when you're sitting in the airplane, suddenly there's a, what do you call it, the drop of air pressure. It's like just probably goes down like this and then you're <laughs> back again. It's like, what happened now? It's like some didn't fit the rhythm. Right? Yes, uh, he's exceptional yeah. at that, at yeah. never really letting the, the audience rest. Yeah, not just, just like one going from A to, to C. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's, um, I don't know, you want to drop some Ibsen references? <laughs> there are lots to drop though, but um, yeah. I mean, I can mention the 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 structure of a, of a real tragedy that Ibsen also uses, yeah. which is when the main character ends up completely alone and shattered and the, all the B characters wins at life. Yeah. And that is a very clever trick because that uh, creates this huge contrast which makes the main character even more miserable. So in Immanuel right. Kant's last days, the student runs away with the maid and creates a great life in Berlin to, with her. And Knotz just leaves knowing that he won't respect Kant anymore mm. and he mm. leaves with his alcohol and he's mm. happy. And then Lampe leaves to create this, uh, this business with his friend which is going to bring even more uh, happiness to his life because he's yeah. serving even more people. Yeah. And everyone really it actually leaves the place living very happy lives except for Kant who loses <laughs> The, everything right. in the end. And Han van Megren is also happy because he's finally gotten the information he needed from his enemy. Hmm. And he's also made Kant reveal his feelings for Lampa, yeah. which he yeah. knew. That's one thing you remind me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kant actually grows, so to speak. Yes. During the play. So it's, and, and that's in, uh, important to emphasize because I mean, like we talked about in the beginning, it was the, the, the play, the book, was mm-hmm. slaughtered by a professor of philosophy who is a Kantian, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously not seeing that part of it. No. So how does Kant go? Or like? So if, when I heard the play for the first time, actually, when I was nine years old, going back to that, I, I had huge sympathy for Kant. Yeah. I heard Kant's monologue about the boy being raped. I thought it was horrible, but I, I still sympathize with him so much. And it's because I saw him as a victim, because that's what he is. He's been in denial because his feelings are, do, do not represent the society, but they don't even represent his belief. It's just crazy how much he's had to go through. And, um, and he develops, he has a character development in the play because f- at first he's this brutal, puritanical, obnoxious philosopher who yells at his servants. And then he ends up being this human who has human feelings. He's not an OCD uh, person who just cares right. about facts and figures. Yeah. He has humans just like Hans van Megren. And I developed huge sympathy for Kant and um, I didn't... Uh, I didn't realize that other people just saw him as a villain because mm-hmm. some people just see him as this person that my father ridicules <coughs> but actually m- my father gives him life right. he says but, Kant is not this philosopher who's just obnoxious he has human feelings well it's, uh, I all the time think about uh, what Ibsen said of, uh, of uh, the apparently main character of the wild duck mm-hmm. uh, Yalmar 
uh, who is this really self-centered guy and it's easy to just see him as a stupid clown. And he wrote when they were going to, to stage it somewhere, uh, bear in mind, this is not a comical figure. He mm -hmm. believes fully himself in what he does. If you start making him into some, some clown, then everything just drops. You know, the whole credibility just drops. Mm. Mm. Who said that? Ibsen? Ibsen, yes. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, as an advice to them. You know. mm. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You can, you can have different variations of how you would do that in painting. It's like if you paint someone killing someone, should you then paint the one who is the murderer sloppy to show that you don't like him? Like, of course not. You, you make it as good as you can so it becomes credible. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes. And, and there's, there's also I mean, one thing that I, I really loved finding mm -hmm. was a clear similarity between Kant and Nora of a Doll's House because I'm totally brain damaged by that one. By now. Nora? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he even, she, uh, Kant even says to Lampe, you have never understood me. Yes, he does. That's true. <laughs> um, the That's only thing lacking is that he says, uh, there's been done great injustice to me. <laughs> yes, I know. And, and Lampe has just been kind yeah. and served him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now he's, he yeah. comes, turns Lampe yeah. into a villain in that scene, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then, so, so there's... Uh, there's you, I mean, you could say, okay, Kant has really bad sides there, and then he has you know, so-called human sides, as if the bad sides weren't human, but <laughs> that's <laughs> another the, discussion. We have the bad sides that, and the human sides. <laughs> that's another discussion. <laughs> yeah. um, but then there's also, uh, uh, yeah, yeah this, this very clear uh, uh, references to, well, I'll just stick to Nora, um, mm -hmm. because to the degree then that, I mean, of course, Kant goes to men, so it's not, it's a transition at least. Um, to the degree that he he grows, he grows through opening up to Megren. And you said something about uh, what sort of categories uh, Kant and Wilhelm Megren represent in that meeting. I don't know if you remember that specific yeah, well, thing about bourgeoisie suddenly... and being timeless. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think what I said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I, what I said is that at that point, they've both had a character development where they've both um, gone from being antagonists, villains, to human. Getting um, sympathy for the other yes. person. Because uh, Han van Megren comes in, and for, the, for everyone who doesn't know the play, Han van Megren is immediately a villain because he says, I'm a forger, mm. I've been in prison. He's, he's a villain. Um, to the innocent eye. But then he opens up about past life events, which in result makes sense why he became a forger. Mm. And then suddenly people sympathize with him. Mm. And then Kant is a villain because he's obnoxious. And then he tells this story about raping the boy and that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't not do it because he, he had such a big oh. urge. And, and then he becomes human and they become human sort of at the same time. And they meet. It's some kind of a duet. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a duet. And yeah. and uh, what actually what uh, Adar and I did, which was interesting, was that we saw this same thing happening. So while Kant was sitting down telling him about the boy, we told Erda, who plays Tan van Megern, to become softer. Yeah. And and then to to reflect Kant. So after that, Erda was like. 
or you know Hanfa Megrin was like but who was it and he says this in a very soft enduring yeah. voice like yeah. who did you want to um, ruin with your yeah. arch uh, yeah. loss yeah. because now he sees Kant's humanity and he becomes a bit he be he becomes very surprised because he didn't yeah. think Kant would was able to be human but now he sees yeah. that it, it's happening yeah and then uh, yeah th then you have that thing about how Kant then being uh, as I learned from you being mm -hmm. the the in the bourgeois the in the contemporary in the persona as Jung would say mm -hmm. and then he meets the timeless timelessness yes. with Helen's presence and in that he in the timelessness he, he, he opens changes up and yeah, becomes yeah. human yeah. yeah and that's yeah. One, one thing that he says of course it is in a sort of operetta like fugue finish and mm -hmm. um, uh, where it says uh, you know <laughs> long pass his hands for like don't let the committee come in now <laughs> like, I can't just standing there <laughs> yes. and uh, and um, uh, and then Kant says, um, uh, well, because Lamp says it's not appropriate now. He says, well, shall I honor the clothes? Let them, uh, let them come in. Right? Uh, or I guess that's the student. Uh, yeah, in yeah, case, yeah and he reacts to honoring the clothes yeah, because yeah. He's, he's gotten smitten by this yeah. timeless yeah. air, uh, this yeah. timeless yeah. force that Megar yeah. comes with. So now yeah. it's like, clothes? Yeah, this yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me be... Yeah. Uh, naked like a child, yeah. you know. <laughs> and I think that's when we get to also the how the, you don't have to understand it l in a literal sense, because he is like that because he has gotten a stroke or he's demented. He had some things happened, mm -hmm. but you could just see it as a symbol of what, how a person, you know, ideally should, how he should act. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's it's. Uh, I always reference uh, Joseph Campbell, where it talks about this mythical. Uh, stories or these images that are exaggerated. You know, he's standing there, this old man with his trousers, mm. trousers down. It's not nervous, I guess. Not saying that you should do that specifically, <laughs> but you should act that way, sort of in your yeah. character, in your yeah, outlook on life. Mm -hmm. You know, honor the clothes. Yes, it's mm. a very well exaggerated uh, metaphor and for that, the character development. And that is also a very subtle. I know what your father was thinking. Okay, <laughs> that is a really uh, uh, reference to to Nora taking off the masquerade, masquerade uh, mm -hmm. costume. Yes, uh, like uh, you could get edit that into it at least. Yes, mm. talking about mask. After directing this play, I, I discovered what a real tragedy was all about, and that you can boil it down to one very funny sentence, and it's. Basically, this introducing a character with a mask on. So introducing a character for um, who's lying. Okay. Uh, introducing a character that is not true, it's just a mask. And then slowly but surely this mask falls off, so the character becomes human. And then in the end you understand why the mask was on from, to begin with. Right. And that the mask should have been on the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> like because then everything would have been better <laughs> so that's basically what a tragedy is yeah. and that's what Kant goes through he has yeah. his mask on <laughs> he should have kept it on <laughs> he should have kept oh it on God. it falls off when when he explains his his homoerotic uh, feelings and and everyone's like oh now he finally becomes human but then it's like in the end you should have kept it on because now <laughs> it's like a bad idea yeah bad keep idea. it on <laughs> 
So a tragedy can be boiled down to that. <laughs> yeah, that's I haven't read that anywhere. I just found oh. found that out by, my, by myself. Yeah, you should, you should copyright it. Yes. Um, so <clears throat> um, uh, basically, what happens then with character development in in the last days of Immanuel Kant is I'm uh, speaking of passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the uh, this, that, that just struck me as, as very nice again this part of this duet mm-hmm. that when Kant uh, sorry is, is honest about his his uh, or just talks about his his passions like that young boy mm-hmm. and of course he is terrified afterwards not because he's done something wrong but because he can destroy his public career yes, and then yes. Megren comes and and basically of course not in a morally different <laughs> field uh but but says the same thing that his desire caused too much yes because he didn't get to make money he didn't get to be, get to be famous he lost a girl mm-hmm. that he had and that's also another because of Kant's philosophy yeah, he lost she starts, the sensual love yeah and she start, starts uh, uh losing weight yes because <laughs> because of Kant's philosophy He's <laughs> like, it's so funny because uh, his philosophy has done more than he'll ever dream of, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. then he understands that. That's, that's the very interesting thing my father did was that he, my father thought, I don't know if he did, but I can imagine that he thought before writing the play, how would people, no, how would Kant respond? How would he react if he knew how much influence his philosophy has had on mm. people today. Yeah. How would he react to that? And, and then he sat down and wrote a very funny play, and I can just imagine his <laughs> imagination going wild, like, oh my gosh, how would Kant re- respond to this? <laughs> and uh, it's just very funny to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> and there's... Uh, I mean, we have to get to Frankenstein. Yes. But there's one last thing. Mm-hmm. And this is really a potent image. And that is when Lampe wants to go out. And that's another thing. Yes. When he tries like seven, eight, nine, fifteen times to get out of the door. And all the time he's brought back. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he gets more and more sort of agitated about that. But keeps a sort of servant mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, then uh, Kant says something about oh, what, what you want uh, at the White Horse women. And be mindful of desire. Two body fluids mix and becomes just a sourdough. Yeah, he says that. And of course, that's thinking from the oppressed uh, homosexual. That's thinking of the oppressor's view. Yeah, on yeah. It. yeah. And it oppressed is, view on it. Yeah, and it is, of course, uh, with homosexuality, of course, you do not get children. No. So that's his attitude. And one another thing is that sourdough is the most uh, vital and living dough. So it's like kind of a weird metaphor. <laughs> 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 he, he says it and creates it into a sourdough, which kills all life. Right. It's like that doesn't make sense. Right. That's that's. The, I mean that that's just so it shows that he doesn't have contact with reality. And that's mm-hmm. again like a. Totally, it's like, why the hell does it talk about sourdough? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's you that's should. a funny uh, quote from uh, from the New Testament with Jesus. Okay, <laughs> I cracked up where he talks about how the, how they were going to, um, to the Pharisees, and uh, and 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 Jesus says, uh, uh, 
mind the sourdough. And this and, oh. and, and disciples are like, what sourdough? Maybe it's, maybe it's angry that we because we forgot bread. And then Jesus says, No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Get it. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's for uh, what? Yeah, no, it because you have to uh, uh, how is it? Uh, for, uh, you have fertilize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has it has to do with having nutrition, right? Yes. Yeah, and uh, and uh, not eating the food of others, metaphorically speaking. Uh, mm. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, how you can say something which is literal, and mm. it has a completely different meaning, and that's uh, that's how you can make comedy also out of, of mm-hmm. great drama. Yes, yeah. yes. In the beginning, the audience doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. They think he's schizophrenic. <laughs> but then you have to look into it. That's the thing. You can see, this is a play that you can see many times. And each time you discover something new. Right. And that's the same with Ibsen. Mm-hmm. And Frankenstein. And Frankenstein. Let's talk about that. Ta-da! <laughs> Finally, we get to the heart of the matter. Yes. <laughs> this is what we want so, to talk should about. should I just start? The... <laughs> Jump the gun. Come on. Okay, so um, while working with Act Two, with the bit, the bit, debates between Kant and Hans von Megern, mm. um, that was challenging for me because I didn't have so much pre-knowledge about Kant, uh, and I didn't really have that much knowledge about my dad's dilemma with Kant either. At this point, I was an innocent brain, so so uh, now I know more. But uh, what I learned as a director is that when something is challenging in a scene, you should always ask the question, what story is the tra- is, are the characters trying to tell? Mm-hmm. What are they trying to tell me? And, and that's so, Blake Snyder again, what is the genre? Yes, yeah. what are they trying to, uh, to tell the audience? Basically just <clears throat> simple. And so I thought about Frankenstein because uh, what better than to think about a book by my favorite author, um, Mary Shelley. And uh, my close relationship to that book brought me to, to link the interrelationship between Frankenstein and the monster with Kant and Hans van Megern. And I read some, some of the things in uh, the Frankenstein monster book and I realized there were many similarities. Uh, for example, when Hans van Megern comes in and confronts Kant, he claims that he's ruined his life because of his philosophy. And in the end of the book by Mary Shelley, when the monster meets his creator, he shouts to him, you have ruined my life because of creating me. These two things are, I mean, it's the same thing happening. Mm-hmm. And then it proceeds, and it's, it's the same thing there too. The, the monster proceeds with telling uh, his creator how he has ruined his life and what it has resulted in that the monster has ended up killing all his beloved ones and that uh, he just did this because he was ugly and because he was filled with bitterness and he was so forlorn. And, and Hans van Megern tells Kant that I ended up forging paintings because of you. Mm. I ended up doing something criminal because of you. And the monster did as well. And then they both, in the end, uh, tell their creators that now because you have done this, I need uh, to come with some conditions. I need you, I need payback time. Mm -hmm. So Hans van Megren, his payback is to, he first wants to get 
the reason from Kant, why did you do what you do? Why did you write what you wrote? Who were you going to revenge on? And then Hans van Meegeren wants Kant to admit his feelings for Lampe. And he does this as a revenge because he knows, because he comes from the future. Right. <laughs> so he knows that Lampe will, that everything will turn to hell if he admits his feelings for Lampe. And again, that's uh, yet another example that nothing is only one-sided when it comes to why the characters do and say what they do. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. it's not. Yeah. And uh, the monster comes with uh, an ultimatum too. He says to his creator, you have to create my, uh, a mate, yeah. a wife for yeah. me, another monster, <laughs> basically, uh, so that I can uh, be, uh, have a relationship to her and be happy. And so they both come with conditions. And those conditions both end up destroying the creator in the end. And I realized this similarity and, and it made my process so much easier. Cause I, and I talked to Adara about, about this, about Han van Meegeren and what we should do about the character. Because we had some challenges about uh, how still he should, have, he should be, how secure he should be. Yeah. Uh, if he should be vulnerable, if he should be angry, you know, how are we going to solve this problem? And then I thought, okay, Hans van Meegeren is the monster. So he needs to be so confident. He needs, needs to be secure beyond anything. Because he knows that it's not his fault. Everything that has happened to him is not his fault. It's the creator's fault. Mm. The creator is the monster, not him. He's just the victim. So now he can do whatever he wants to do. Now he can say whatever he wants to All say. Right. So, so uh, you could argue that Marichal is sort of, in some way does the same as Ibsen does in the Doll's House, where you think the monster is the monster, and because it's like, here's a... And it's the other way around. Here's a yes. nine feet tall human being. So obviously that's the monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it's not what you think, and that's <laughs> what life life is like. That you know, mm. something is never <clears throat> as you think. It's usually the opposite. Mm. And it's this, yeah, it's the same with the doll's house, and it's the same with Frankenstein, and it's the same with Immanuel Kant's Last Days. Mm. Um, and so I put this into the directing uh, of this character because we realized that he has to be extremely secure. He has to be so confident. And then I remember Adara helped a lot with this, my co-director. Mm. She told Erda to imagine a moment in his life when he was very, very wronged by a friend who he initially trusted. And then he went back to this specific moment and he put that moment into his acting. He remembered that while acting. Mm -hmm. And then we saw the magic happen on stage. Right. Um, so that was interesting to see. And that came out of the, the, the comparison with the Frankenstein monster. Right. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been uh, really mind-blowing. Is, uh, is there something you'd like to add to that? I mean, well, maybe you can say a little bit about going to Kant's philosophy if, you're, if you want to do that at the end. Yeah. Um, well, the interesting thing, which is, can also be linked to the Frankenstein monster, is that um, Frankenstein, he explains uh, to Walton, who's the narrator in the book, he explains to Walton, it wasn't my fault that I created the monster. 
that I was not to blame because while I was in my laboratorium and studying the dead corpses, there was a supernatural power beyond me that led me to do these things. Mm. I was struck by this supernatural enthusiasm and I wasn't doing it, the force was doing it. You know, he explains this to Walton. And so it wasn't his fault. And it's the same with Kant because Kant is, is uh, also struck by this idea that he's going to identify the genius, which is this met metaphysical force that doesn't exist. You can't see it before your eyes. And Frankenstein does the same thing because he creates life out of lifeless matter. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's this one scene where, well, that's one thing too, uh, where, where uh, Megan says that uh, when I copied, I, I got on the chain. But when you copied psalm verses, then you, they, people praised you for it. Mm -hmm. And then later, Lampe says, I remember when you were copying these psalm verses <laughs> and yes. it becomes like, like a fact, right? not, not just an intuition. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you, you could say uh, uh, what Kant is doing is sort of putting together body parts, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> creating this idea of the genius. Yes, uh, he is. And you can also understand, I guess, uh, Frankenstein in that sense, that is something that is not suitable to living in reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does something yeah. that shouldn't be done. Yeah. He creates life out of lifeless matter. And when, and when he does that, disaster will follow mm. because he's not following nature. Humpha mm. Meger, yeah. and all he does is he wants to glorify nature. He wants to recapture nature and to make it even more beautiful. Uh, so he wants to create life out of lifeful, out, out of lively matter. Mm. But Kant represents the opposite. He wants to create life out of lifeless matter, which is the exact dynamic with, uh, in the Frankenstein monster. Well, that's what you call a punchline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're finished, guys. <laughs> After Nerdum, thank you for coming to the Cave of Apollos. Thank you for being here. And thank you for watching. Remember, you can support our show at patreon.com slash caveofapollos, and I'll see you next month. <laughs>